13th Roundtable Discussion brought to you by Transparent Media Truth. This episode was recorded on August 4th, 2020. The events of the past six months have now more than ever brought the idea of freedom of choice and healthcare decisions back into the forefront of a necessary public dialogue that needs to become more widespread. With mask wearing, shelter-in-place orders, and the distinct possibility of a mandatory vaccination program looming on the horizon, Americans and citizens of the world can no longer continue to live their lives with eyes wide shut. When a group of America's frontline doctors stood upon the steps of the Supreme Court in an attempt to educate the public about the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine and zinc in fighting COVID, it dawned on those of us at Transparent Media Truth that the sanctity of the doctor-patient relationship had been breached. The media backlash and subsequent national debate made us wonder how and when such personal health care decisions became a public conversation and not a personal choice between an individual and their doctor, under the protection of confidentiality, with the only caveat being informed consent. Join us in this roundtable discussion as our panel of experts explores the legal aspects of practicing medicine in an environment where government and corporate restrictions and misinformation are used to confuse the public and prevent doctors from pursuing valuable treatment modalities that can save lives while promoting big pharma profits over the people they are supposed to protect. Dr. Judy Mikovits has PhDs in biochemistry and molecular biology and spent 35 years working in the fields of immunology, natural products chemistry, epigenetics, and HIV-AIDS drug development. She has over 50 peer-reviewed papers to her name and is the co-author of two books, Plague and the sequel, Plague of Corruption. Her journey led her to discover a relationship between vaccine manufacture and the release of the harmful XMRV virus, which has been linked to cancer, chronic fatigue syndrome, and other maladies. In an attempt to educate the public about her findings, she ran afoul of the corporate government establishment and continues to spread the word despite legal challenges and corporate media mudslinging. Find out more about her work at PlagueTheBook.com. Our second guest on the panel is esteemed Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, who has been a tireless voice for the vaccine freedom movement since 2001. She has literally spent tens of thousands of hours researching the science behind vaccines and used her knowledge to expose the lack of safety studies and even legal liability for vaccine manufacturers eliminating the ability of vaccine-injured patients to petition Big Pharma for redress. She came to national prominence after appearing in the movie Vaxxed, produced by Del Bigtree and Dr. Andrew Wakefield, helping to expose the dangers of the expanded vaccine schedule currently required for every child to attend public school. Find out more about her at drtenpenny.com. Our third guest on the show today is Dr. Richard Fleming. Dr. Fleming is a nuclear cardiologist who found himself in a legal battle after discovering a diagnostic technique that measured the extent of heart disease, but used only half of an expensive radioactive isotope typically required for the procedure. He currently has his own COVID treatment protocol undergoing the peer review process and has refined his diagnostic methodology in a process called FMTVDM, which can determine arterial inflammation levels in near real time and is an excellent tool for gauging the efficacy of experimental treatment protocols for inflammatory diseases such as COVID, as results can be measured so quickly after the treatment is applied. Check out fmtvdm.wixsite.com for more information. 
Our final medical professional on the panel today is homeopathic Dr. Charles Pixley. After discovering the work of Dr. Gaston Naissons out of Canada, Pixley became convinced that Naissons' cancer treatment protocol 714X had the potential to make the fear of a cancer diagnosis a thing of the past. After helping to distribute the therapy in the United States and witnessing its effectiveness firsthand, Dr. Pixley was confronted by a medical establishment that claimed the thousands of patients cured showed merely anecdotal evidence, while refusing to fund a study that strictly followed the protocol that worked. Eventually, Dr. Pixley chose to go to jail rather than stop providing this life-saving medicine, sacrificing his freedom rather than acquiescing to a system that put profits over human lives. Discover more about his story at harmless714x.com. Finally, we are joined by Rocco Gelati, a constitutional lawyer and founder of the Constitutional Rights Center in Canada. He has been fighting for the freedoms of Canadians for decades and has been a tireless advocate for the vaccine-hesitant community's right to choose medical procedures under the Nuremberg Code's requirement of informed consent. Currently, he is involved in suing the Canadian government over its ability to enforce the multiple COVID-19 measures imposed on the population as a result of a supposed state of emergency, infringing on the rights of citizens who no longer have the protection of the Constitution or even legislative action, so long as emergency powers are claimed by the executive. Find out more about Rocco Gelati on Twitter, at Rocco Gelati Law. Stay tuned for this excellent discussion about the need for healthcare reform and the development of standard practices that allow doctors the freedom to prescribe treatments that work and patients the freedom to choose those treatments under the condition of informed consent. Listen in as these doctors report their personal travails and attempts to bring valuable medical discoveries into common practice. When those discoveries cut into the profits of a powerful and corrupt corporate government establishment that places profits over the well-being of citizens. I will be your host. My name is Doug McKenty. I am also the host of the weekly interview podcast, The Shift with Doug McKenty. You can find out more of my work on Facebook and YouTube at McKenty on Twitter or at www.theshiftnow.com. As always, I'd like to thank producer Rob Rubin for getting all of us together. You can find out more about him and see all the roundtable discussions on the Transparent Media Truth YouTube channel or at transparentmediatruth.com. Enjoy this roundtable discussion featuring some of the most prominent voices in healthcare freedom today as they discuss the problems working in an industry that prevents so many potentially life-saving treatment protocols from ever seeing the light of day. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this uh, really special edition of the roundtable discussion. We've got a lot of knowledge sitting around the table uh, for this episode. Um, as you have heard the introduction, you kind of know everybody that's involved. This particular episode is about health freedom with all the conversation that's been going on lately about this uh, hydroxychloroquine treatment for COVID, we are asking the question today about just at what point can people start to treat disease? Can doctors make a choice to treat a disease? Can patients make a choice to treat a disease? How far should the government be, be going here uh, in terms of preventing people from using potential treatments? Uh, and, and how can science and healthcare evolve at a fast enough pace to respond to something like the presence of a new virus in our environment uh, in order to get treatments out there as quickly as possible without having to go through one, either a lot of government red tape or two, potentially dealing with uh, a lot of corruption that's going on within the system 
uh, in the relationship that we see, the tight relationship between the pharmaceutical corporations and the government, which are pushing their highly profitable drugs over potentially cheaper treatments that can really get the job done. So uh, I want to thank everybody for being here today. And uh, I'm really looking forward to getting kind of a, a, a legal angle on all of this. We talk so much about, about the medical side, and I'm sure we're going to hear a lot about that today, but also uh, where does the law come in in terms of protecting patients, protecting doctors, and protecting that patient-doctor relationship. So treatment protocols that are agreed upon at that level can, can move forward, especially when they're highly effective. So uh, most of our doctors on the panel today have actually encountered legal trouble, and I'm sure that all of them have encountered quite a bit of, of serious pushback from the establishment at one point or another. I'm going to give them uh, a, a couple of minutes here at the beginning just to describe their personal stories, uh, and then we'll go from there. So, Dr. Fleming, do you want to talk about your experience uh, with some of the treatment protocols that you've designed and the difficulties you've had in getting them out and the pushback you've received from the establishment? Right. Well, first off, thank you for inviting me to be here and for everybody who's uh, agreed to appear here today. I think it's important for us to each give this type of information to the general public because this is the best opportunity that the general public has to hear truth and some transparency about what's really going on uh, in medicine and COVID-19. You know, when I entered medical school, the second thing the dean of our medical school told us was that 90% of what we were going to be taught was wrong, but they didn't know what that was. And they encouraged those of us who were research-oriented to step forward and to do that type of research to make the field better because I was already a physicist to begin with when I came in. I took that challenge uh, literally. Um, what he didn't tell us was how much resistance there would really be to changing the system, um, which I've had a wonderful opportunity to learn about on firsthand basis. Um, I don't think I would change what I've done despite all the, the blowback and the, and the problems that have occurred because what I did was I held true to my Geneva Oath, which is similar to the Hippocratic Oath, but our class decided to take the Geneva Oath, which evolved after World War II, after watching Nazi Germany and making decisions about not to treat patients like they had been. Um, it was discussed in the Nuremberg Trials. When I was in medical school, uh, part of what uh, I became actively involved with was heart disease. I joined the American Heart Association in 1976 as the youngest person in those affiliate faculty positions. And I helped to rewrite the guidelines for cholesterol and ACLS and a number of other things. But by the time I was in uh, my cardiology fellowship, so for the listener, you have medical school, internship, residency. And if you're dumb enough, you try to get into a fellowship position. If you're really stupid, then you become a nuclear cardiologist and add even more time on it to that. <clears throat> and my uh, involvement and work there looked at the effects of diets and heart disease. And um, I was one of the people that was actively involved in doing the Dean Ornish uh, patients way back when. And I looked at blood flow and I just, and I was asked to look at some of the newer isotopes that were coming out to be looking for heart disease. And so I wrote some of the first papers on those. And like everybody at that point in time, I, I went along with a party line, which was that you needed two doses of radioactive isotope to do these studies. And uh, you had to wait an hour before you start imaging and then another four hours to do the second image. And and um, 
when I developed, uh, got out of my fellowship and had my own private practice, that's when I began to critically look at that. And I discovered that lo and behold, you didn't need to give two doses of radiation to people. You needed to only give one. And that if you started imaging very early at about five minutes versus waiting for an hour, you would find critically ill patients that you otherwise would miss. Big Pharma was not really excited about that. That's led to my legal issues that I ended up with in court, um, where I was accused of actually committing billing fraud because I got two sets of images after giving only a single dose of radioactive isotope. Turns out that now most people in the field accept that you only need the one that this isotope does move around. And there's been other people like Cedars-Sinai and, and Emory and lots of other places that have shown these images. Uh, but you have to move right away to do it. Uh, Big Pharma wasn't happy about that because essentially what that means is that the three million extra curies of radiation that have been delivered to people never needed to do that. Um, that is the equivalent of one-third of the radiation that shut down the Japanese reactor. You did not need to waste people's time by extending it out four hours versus one hour. You found the critically ill people by doing it the way that I had recommended. Uh, and currently about 100,000 a year critically ill people are missed using the current approach and, and they end up dying from critical heart disease. And Big Pharma really is not very pleased with the fact that that means that they've essentially billed $20 billion of extra billings in the last two decades. And they've, we've paid for that as taxpayers from CMS and all the other health insurances. Um, <clears throat> that court case was the most interesting experience I've, I've ever had because it showed me how uh, evidence is hidden in, in trials, how judges will work with the uh, attorneys to hide evidence. I, I've got a very nice tape where the judge is talking to the attorneys where he says the jury doesn't need to know the whole truth and the wool can be pulled over their eyes. Um, it's very enlightening when you get it. It's not very fun to go through as, as a lot of people have experienced. But the reality is, is that my commitment as a physician is to the patient. It's not to the courts. It's not to the politicians. It's not to the journalists. It is to the patients. And it's to the, my peers. And it's to my peers in medicine and to my peers in science. <laughs> and so that commitment I've, I've held true to. And uh, part of the, the most recent thing that I have done is uh, as a result of understanding all of that and understanding the errors in that testing is I've developed a patented test called FMTVDM that allows us to measure changes in tissue as they're occurring, allowing us to see things earlier in the process and between that and the inflammation theory that I developed in 1994, I know Judy is familiar with this. Uh, I, in 94, I came up with a theory that says it's not cholesterol that causes heart disease, although cholesterol is involved. It is an inflammatory process. So I presented that in 1994 at American Heart Meetings, laying out all the details. I did it again in 95. In 1999, I published it in a cardiology textbook. In 2000 and 2002, I published papers looking at bacterial infections and how the thymus gland became prominent, how T cells got activated, how when we treated the infection, uh, we, we successfully reversed some of the heart disease. 
thymus gland attenuated back. So we showed the role of bacteria and viruses in that. And then in 2004, I was on 2020. And so I think probably the thing that I find most disheartening with COVID-19 is that despite having presented this theory 26 years ago, and despite people having published how to correctly use ventilators 15 to 20 years ago in that little-known journal, New England Journal of Medicine, the people that have been taking care of COVID patients have not been addressing the reason why they're dying, which is an inflammatory thrombotic process. They have been chasing a virus. And, and, uh, and while I recognize this isn't maybe where we're at yet in the conversation, um, I'm, I'm actually calling uh, at this point in time for people to recognize that we first off have not been treating this correctly, that we need to treat the inflammatory and thrombotic consequence. That's why there's hundreds of thousands of people who are dead. And that PCR testing, routines testing in society outside of a hospital or doctor's office where the physician knows whether they need to be initiated on treatments like hydroxychloroquine, zinc, and azithromycin, which if we get to it, has a, it's not just a secondary bacterial prevention. It actually prevents the replication of the virus. That at this point in time, I'm actually calling out for a moratorium on PCR testing in settings other than a doctor's office or hospital. I'm aware of nobody who's been denied access to a hospital because they didn't already have a PCR swab in their hands and testing people for PCR outside of the hospital, even if it is correct, which we can argue about, does not provide them the treatment that they need. And those subsequent days are, are critically lost days that these patients are not being treated. Next. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Right. Thanks for thanks for that story there, Dr. Fleming. Um, we do need to uh, kind of keep moving on. Not a lot of time for for so many people, but um, we'll get back to it. Thanks a lot. Uh, My Dr. apologies for the length. No, no problem, uh, Dr. Mikovits. Can you just explain some of the legal issues that you've had over the past? I think our our audience is probably familiar with your story, but. Um, you know, just let people know how difficult it is to, to uh, swim against the stream here in, in your industry. Well, I think, I think rather than my, my own personal um, struggles and with the legal system, it's uh, with, I, you know, with the, the patient population, because we, I'm a PhD, have a PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology. So we've worked in a translational setting where we provide the tools, um, the diagnostics that Dr. Fleming was just talking about, um, and it's critical to, to this um, legal standpoint. And, and then the drugs, obviously, it, it, where those companion diagnostics fit, giving the right drug to the right person, giving all their genetic and epigenetic susceptibility. This was you know, the heart of our 40 years of research is understanding how viruses interact with the immune system to cause disease. So in the 1990s, in doing that at the um, National Cancer Institute, I was leading the lab of antiviral drug mechanisms in the late 90s. And we did a, we uh, developed and did not patent because we were intramural and that wasn't my goal, but we developed a test to look at profiling. So profiling of, of RNA expression um, of many genes, systems biology approach where you look at uh, interacting genes and it was early in the days of RNA profiling, but what it did was it helped us take non-Hodgkin lymphoma, which is just a wastebasket, and then see um, which pathway 
employees were critically involved so that you could um, see who was most likely to benefit from a given therapy rather than do therapies that would harm the patient uh, in the beginning. So it's that kind of profiling that should be used um, in COVID-19 um, um, is the, as uh, Dr. Fleming accurately said, it's the inflammatory response, not the infection. So if you look at what we were calling a cytokine signature of disease, and we'd publish that in NHL, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, we'd publish that in several other cancers, aggressive prostate cancers, um, you know, you could, you could begin to see, um, you know, which infections would lead to uh, disease in which people, knowing full well that um, from our work a decade earlier in HIV, um, we had developed with Candace Pert. I was the technician on the team. I didn't have a PhD, but we had developed at the time peptide T with Dr. Candace Pert and Frank Rossetti. Um, and peptide T simply blocked the interaction um, between the two key um, uh, parts of the immune system that were dysregulated by HIV in the most susceptible individuals. And yet the FDA never allowed that therapy to be approved or these diagnostic strategies to be approved. So in my 40 year experience, which started with um, type one alpha interferons, similar things. So we were able to use interferons for uh, virus associated cancers. And the answer was really low, low, low dose for immune therapies like interleukin two, um, uh, type one interferons. Um, and continually throughout my career, the experience is, is that the FDA denies use of biological therapies and therapies that like hyperbaric oxygen and adoptive transfers we'd been doing now since 1983. Um, and they simply don't allow those. They call the data anecdotal and, and don't allow the patients to be treated. Um, rather, you use drugs like um, at the time AZT in, in HIV AIDS. And, and that was the, the problem there. Um, is that using it very high dose and not allowing it to be used in conjunction with peptide T or other things um, is, is what killed millions as we experimented on, mm -hmm. on, on patients. And this is exactly what we're seeing in COVID-19 where the FDA, in my opinion, are the people um, who literally gave themselves the authority for efficacy of the drugs um, in the early 1960s, probably about 1962. So they, they were charged by Congress only to have the ability to do um, safety. So once a drug passes safety studies, um, no matter what, or a therapy um, passes safety studies, rigorous safety studies, phase one, two clinical trials, um, uh, they should be allowed to be used by any healthcare practitioner and the, and the patient should be allowed freedom of choice. And yet from, and, and this is the subject of the movie, The Dallas Buyers Club, about the use of peptide T and how this was um, kept from the patients such that they had to go somewhere else to, to get these drugs. And in, in 40 years, um, Candace Pert, you know, um, 
died a few years ago and never was the was peptide T approved despite its efficacy not only in uh, HIV AIDS but um, in chronic fatigue syndrome which we now know is strongly associated with another family of retroviruses um, that were transmitted into humans via contaminated blood supply and vaccines that's the XMRVs uh, that you know and this is where I face my legal study <laughs> troubles as, as the data had been sound for 40 years. And yet, as one of my colleagues in type one interferon manufacturing for, for low dose uh, solutions in coronaviruses, in Ebola viruses, in retroviruses, that very first drug we purified and I purified in 1980, biological response modifier, um, now could be used at literally pennies a day. Um, and yet it's prevented just like hydroxychloroquine is prevented and it would solve all of these problems. The next pandemic and the next pandemic and diagnostic strategies exist to look at the entire panel, profiling again, the various pathways to see which drug fits which patient. It's called companion diagnostic and these things never get approved. Um, we've had a we've had a therapeutic that would have worked for Ebola, HTLV, HIV with a with a uh, private company called um, uh, Genius G E N Y O U S um, or, or Omnitura um, for you know literally 15 years we've consulted and the and the FDA simply will not approve uh, the drugs calling the data anecdotal despite the trials. So the system is going, and I think the first place to start to fix it is to defund the FDA um, and, and start over. I, I propose, uh, you know, back to safety because we all know our food is contaminated and contributing to these problems. And then looking, you know, it, it was called personalized medicine then. It should be personalized medicine now. We know, and, and the, the medical community's known that double-blind placebo-controlled studies never work because, in fact, there is not that perfect healthy individual, and rarely do you look at the patient population who's getting the therapeutic. They, they make up things called immunological bridging studies. Oh, yeah, we did the work in a 20-year-old, so we know that guard still works in a nine-year-old prepubescent, you know, child. This is ridiculous. So that's where my fight continues to this day to, um, to stop that practice. And we have example after example after example and allow these technologies that exist for the diagnostics as well as the therapeutics to be used now with freedom of choice for the patient and the healthcare practitioner. Yeah. All right. Thanks for that, Judy. I, I can only imagine the frustration that uh, you must feel and everybody on the panel when you can clearly see that these treatment protocols are working and you go up against this government bureaucracy and just get so stifled and then it just never comes out and they and the machine keeps on rolling and people keep on dying. Um, uh, again, uh, I wish that we had hours to talk to, to each panelist here because there's so much information, but we've got to kind of keep moving forward. Um, Dr. Tenpenny, do you want to talk about some of the, you've been doing uh, so much work to expose um, the potential dangers of vaccinations for what the last 20 years or so now, what kind of pushback have you felt from the establishment in terms of the work that you've been doing? 
Well, thank you so much for having me on this panel. But after listening to those two stories, I feel like I've had no resistance. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I mean, like really none. I've had a pretty cushy life in comparison, you know, I mean, quite frankly, it's, you know, uh, it, it is interesting because when I, you know, I was thinking about this because everybody else does have more, you know, uh, stories that really relate and you've managed to kind of avoid a lot of it, but you really, you do your own practice and you're working for yourself. I think this is an important distinction to make. Uh, you because you and you can you can tell the audience a little bit about your history. You have had corporate jobs in the past, but but for the last ten or fifteen years or so, you've had your own practice, and that does give you more independence, right? Well, my first career was as a I was as an emergency physician. I was the director of a level two trauma center for twelve years, and then I moved to Cleveland in '96 and set up my own practice, which is uh, a, um, which I'm always proud to say. People have come from 18 states and I'm sorry, all 50 states and more than 18 countries to get well and off their pharmaceutical drugs, mm-hmm. and and I feel like uh, you know I got involved with investigating problems associated with vaccines after going to a national vaccine information center meeting in Washington. D.C. in September of 2000. And when I started investigating that, I kept thinking that sooner or later I would come across something that made sense, that it seemed reasonable that we were injecting children with all of this foreign matter and somehow that was supposed to magically make them healthy. And it became a bit of an obsession that the, lo- the further I went down the rabbit hole, uh, it, I kept thinking sooner or later something would make sense. And then, of course, after 40,000 hours of research and nearly 20 years of my life, it's, it's optimally, it's so clear to me that it's the absolute antithesis of that. You know, I did work, I was, a, I had a, a corporate job for a while as a, um, as a medical director at a, a, at a, a Fortune 200 company for a couple of years, I did that because they had an integrative and holistic program that I was brought in as a consultant for and stayed on for two years, which was kind of fun. I suppose probably the biggest blowback that I've had is in, um, it would have been January of, I have to get my date state here, January of 2015, I was invited to come speak at a um, conference in Australia. And I was going to be there for three weeks. And actually, I was going to be in seven different cities over the course of that three-week period of time. I was primarily going as a holiday, and I was going as an invited guest to speak. It was a big conference. It wasn't just me. It was a conference on holistic and healthy living with homeopaths and nutritionists and things like that. Mm -hmm. Well, as soon as the powers that be found out that I was actually coming to Australia, they made this huge big deal about it. And they they started a petition to revoke my my visa permanently from Australia and and it just went like, and, and all of the things that came out in the news were flat out lies. And I mean, just, just lies. And it was right. interesting because I'm an osteopathic physician and I got beamed in twice to be on the Today Show. And both times I was there, the only thing that they could say to me is that you're just an osteopath, right? <laughs> so, I mean, and that was right. the only question that they seemed to have for me. And how many times I said, you know, an osteopathic physician in America is, you know, an MD plus knowing how to do manipulation like a chiropractor didn't really seem to matter. And But the, the biggest thing that came out of that was I had a really big radio interview about the third or fourth day that this was really rolling out internationally with the largest radio station in Sydney. And at the end of that, at the end of that interview, the, the man, the, the interviewer said to me, so were you kind of surprised at the vociferous way that they've come after you on the international scale? And I said, yeah, quite frankly, I said, I was coming to going to speak at seven venues, about 200 people per venue, mostly preaching to the choir. I could have quietly come into your country, done my own thing for three weeks, traveled around and seen part of Australia that I haven't seen before and quietly left. 
you people made an international event out of this. <laughs> and he kind of laughed and he went, well, I got to give you that one, you know? <laughs> and so we got more advertising and more people w- woke up about vaccines, which every time they pull one of these big FUPAs, they did it with bird flu, swine flu, bird flu, H1N1. They've, every time they do it, each time, even through this COVID-19 thing, each big thing they do, more of the world wakes up and says, what is going on mm-hmm. here? So after that event, um, I, I, you know, I haven't checked. That was in 2015. I don't think they revoked my visa, but they might have. I don't know. I haven't tried to go back. I'm not really sure. Right. But, um, uh, you know, I had, hunt, I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens of very big inter- international interviews talking about problems with vaccines that mil- literally millions of people heard this message that they've never heard it before. Mm-hmm. And so each time that they've done this, you know, we, we, it grows and grows and grows and more and more people wake up. It's almost like they shoot their own their, shoot their, their own feet with doing this. So I haven't had, thankfully, thank God, I haven't had the legal trials that, that Dr. Fleming and Dr. Mikovits have. And I haven't really had a lot of things. And, I, and to your point, I think that part of the reason that I can do what I do is because I'm a self-employed medical physician, medical doctor. You know, doctors sold their souls along, you know, to uh, back in the 80s when they bought into Medicare, Medicaid, and they decided that they were going to close their offices and become employees, W-2 employees, wage earners of the big hospital systems, because now they are locked in as an employee. And I use this example sometime of saying, you know, if you worked at Dunkin' Donuts, and every person who came through the line, you were telling them how bad donuts were for them. And it was really going to raise their cholesterol. It was going to make them fat. They should, you know, eat something more healthy. You know, I don't think Dunkin' Donuts would keep you in their employ for very long. And so the same thing with physicians who want to speak out against pharma or against vaccines, or they want to speak up for different types of therapies that they should be able to use. They can't do that because they get sanctioned, they get kicked out, and they get fired because they're an employee. And because physicians have no concept about business, they don't know how to set up and run a business. They just know how to write words on a piece of paper and hand them out for a living. Um, They don't know where to go next. And so I do believe that I've, I've been able to um, much more freely be at a very loud way about this because I don't have an employer. I don't have anybody. Right. And the other thing is that everything that I've ever said and done is pretty much an intensive review of their literature. So if they come after me for things that I say, it's sort of, again, it's like pointing the gun at yourself. Like, oh, yeah, we said that in the New England Journal or in JAMA or, in, or wherever they, it is. Because every slide that I put on every, on every presentation, and I've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, as a footnoted reference from a mainstream medical journal or the CDC or the NIH or some, some other place. So there's only so much they can say to refute what I say because I'm just telling the public what is out there that the mainstream's not willing to say. Yeah, you make a great point. It's not just the legal liability, though, that uh, doctors face. It's uh, losing their jobs. Like we just had the example of Dr. Simone Gold last week, who lost her job after she stood up with the rest of the doctors in front of the Supreme Court talking about hydroxychloroquine. Um, And also the media pushback, which is really real. Once you speak out, all of a sudden, the corporate media will just hammer you through the ringer, even if you're not uh, you know, getting put up on charges and having to deal with, uh, with a lot of legal ramifications or getting threatened with having your license revoked, uh, your name will be dragged through the mud. I just read an article this morning about, and I think I get the name right, Dr. Raoult in, in France, who did the hydroxychloroquine study and then just got hammered all over the U.S. media. The, 
the article I read this morning just said, you know, discredited Dr. Raolt. Didn't even go into any kind of details. And it's like, this guy's one of the most, I think one of the, the most highly respected in, infectious disease specialists in Europe. So it's insane to see what the media will do, even if the law doesn't come after you. Well, and, and if I can interject, that's a good point, because what this, this entire COVID-19 has become has become a political hot potato, as opposed to a scientific medical discussion. I think that what's happened is that because President Trump came out in favor of the possibility of using hydroxychloroquine, that that produced the antagonist of, uh, in this case, Dr. Fauci at uh, NIAID and others who were seen then as the other side of the uh, of the argument, and that became a he said, she said, or he said, he said in this scenario, and that's what the journalists and media have really focused on is which side of this argument are you on, as is as if it's a political argument, and it is not a political argument. This is a medical argument that should never be in politics. It should not be in the journalists uh, because they're 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 just. Uh, repeating what their favorite superhero is of the week, whether that superhero has a reason to be the one to be considered right or wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's that make sense. It, it, it did. Yeah. And okay. we'll get back to it, especially the politics and, and not the personal choice, which is something that that's really struck me. Right. Um, but I want to get um, Dr. Charles Pixley's story as well. And I want to say, uh, you are a homeopathic doctor, right? So you don't have an MD, but I do want to mention for the audience that you have the most street cred of anyone on our panel because you've actually done time in prison for for standing up for your beliefs. Well, that's so, quite the introduction. Here's a guy yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, I'm just you've made the sacrifice, man. I think people Thanks. need to respect yeah, that, welcome right? Welcome to the panel, right? And yeah. welcome to the panel. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> well, uh, somebody's calling me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well. Uh, first of all, I'm honored to be on this panel because what I see is such brilliant light that it's just astounding. So by the grace of God, we got this far. Um, back in 1990, I'm a Vietnam vet, took the oath in 1967, did two tours. Fast forward through dozens of jobs and hard work and investment banking and, and all kinds of things. In 1990, it, it came to my attention that the FDA had been blocking all sorts of cures for cancer. And it came through a guy named Ed McCabe, who wrote, who was who nicknamed Mr. Oxygen. And he wrote a book called Oxygen Therapies. And um, so in the vernacular, I'm a catalyst. I'm a free radical, an enzyme, a proteolytic enzyme, a facilitator. Um, so I got a hold of Ed McCabe, and I helped him to get on radio. And we, at the time, there was no uh, no internet, no Amazon, and you could, radio was, was wide open. You, there was, I think, maybe fifteen hundred, two thousand owners uh, at the time, so it was fairly easy to get somebody on the air if it was topical for them at that week or that day. And um, just to give you an idea. We've, we've been lied to about oxygenation and ozone. Ozone is a therapy. Oxygenation is proven therapy, as uh, Dr. Mikovits pointed out, hyperbaric chamber. Dr. Um, Steenblock in California has been reversing 
even 20 year old stroke victims to normal normalcy with hyperbaric chambers. So it's, it's a powerful tool, oxygen. Uh, Kribizin, which was brought back from the Nuremberg trials by Andrew Ivey, Dr. Andrew Ivey, who was one of the most ethical men known to medicine out of uh, Johns Hopkins. And he was one of the panelists. He brought back Kribizin and he was destroyed. They wiped, they just wiped him out. No longer envisaged. Royal Rife, who came up with that, that famous microscope that was destroying viruses two miles away in a test tube behind Rick Wall. Um, Iskador, mistletoe, carnivore, cancel, Hoxie's therapy, which is still available if you know how to get it. Um, Gerson's therapy, which is a very strict diet. That was, there was nothing else in the 30s, and Max Gerson figured it out that if you take everything away and juice your um, nutrition, whether it be you know, fruits and vegetables, but no sugar, no salt, no tea, no flour, no, oh, no, no, nothing, just this juice and uh, three quarters of an ounce of uh, calf's liver blood every day. And he was reversing terminal cases. Then his daughter took over after that, Charlotte Gerson. Thalidomide, we were lied to about thalidomide on the other side of their table. Aleatril, SCT, antineoplasms, uh, Dr. Um, Stanislav Brzezinski at ND Anderson still fighting after all these years. He's been, he's been on the carpet so many times. It's amazing that he keeps going. Mm -hmm. So bypass surgery versus chelation. Chelation has been around since the Second World War and saved millions of lives from clogged arteries. So the one that got me was a, a scientist by the name of Gaston Naysan, who was French-Canadian at the end of his life. He was born in Lyon. He created a microscope that's capable of, of seeing in our blood and in the, in the life force of uh, all living things, a, what he termed the somatide or a tiny body. And that tiny body is the last stage of light before it becomes DNA. It has a three-stage life cycle in a normal healthy form, but it goes into a 16-stage macro cycle or is pleomorphic. And thereby, he, de he developed a way to pre-diagnose degenerative disease cancer and AIDS um, two years in advance or during, you know, you could say that you're already in at your terminal or you're on your way, you start doing something now. Um, this inspired me to go to Cornell and look up uh, Title 21, Part 56 and Part 50, and I formed an institutional review board under the laws of Congress, which are not under the laws of the FDA, although they think they are. And uh, Dr. Dietmar Schildvector, MD, PhD, a former professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, became my chief investigator. Uh, Dr. Robert Atkins, the famous diet doctor, was on the panel, and a dozen other high-level doctors, from one from Davis University, one was the uh, commissioner of health, the first appointed so-called alternative practitioner uh, from Alaska, appointed by Governor Hickel, and uh, a dozen others. and. Uh, the most stunning part of the whole story is that Gaston Nason, in an effort, he discovered what um, Otto Warburg saw in 1923 and got a second Nobel Prize was the oxygen transferring enzymes and that any cell deprived of oxygen by over uh, 35% or 30 some percent allows for the fermentation of the blood sugar and the beginning of the neoplasm and that by and then that cell then begins to create a hormone that blocks the immune system. Well, 
Nason saw the same thing. And uh, simultaneous to all that, Dr. Schildvector developed the most highly calibrated blood test known to man, or at least as far as I'm aware, that can pre-diagnose cancer and degenerative disease up to two years before it actually occurs. So Nason then developed a non-toxic therapy called that he called 714X. It's only the uh, transposed initials of his name, seventh letter of the alphabet, 14th letter of the alphabet, X is year of birth. And uh, this is a trimethyl bicyclonitrominal heptane chloride. In the shortened version, it's a camphor compound that is um, in a homeopathic dilution would be a 3C dilution. And it has a molecule of nitrogen and a molecule of ammonium, undetectable. And the, the cancer is known to be a nitrogen trap. And the, his, his goal was to strengthen the immune system to fight the cancer. But the miraculous side effect was that the, with the molecule of nitrogen, nitrogen, it would shut off the hormone secretion, and then the body would be, able, would be enabled to attack the cancer and wipe it out. So from 1968 until even till today, um, I don't know how many millions, but lots of people have used the medicine very successfully to eliminate cancer. So I started after the Institutional Review Board was formed, which of course you have to provide informed consent. So I went to the extreme. I formed a book called Do No Harm, 714X, Defying a Hopeless Prognosis. And we provided that anybody who would, I would go on radio uh, and tell the story. And within a three minute interview or an hour interview, we would get anywhere from 3,000 to 10,000 phone calls. And it was just, oh my God. It was like somebody opened a fire hose on us. And um, so many terminal um, Americans, it's just astounding. And they would want more information. So um, this whole story came out with a book written by Christopher Bird, famous author who wrote Secret Life of Plants with John Tompkins. And he wrote uh, Galileo Gallo of the Microscope about Gaston Nason. So we would sell do no harm and the nation's book together so there would be no excuse whatsoever for them to not be able to give informed consent as to the quality the quantity the the legal and whatever question they may have and the bottom line is 714x has no side effects whatsoever it's inexpensive and by the pre one of the threats that we posed was we had 50,000 terminal patients in a three-year period not had them in our office but had them processed and we always referred them out and uh, Dr. Schilbecker sometimes took them to Germany uh, to treat them. He was a world-leading expert in fetal cell transplant, not human fetal cells, but um, bovine, um, sheep fetal cells. And, uh, and, and Germany is way advanced in the American technology in this regard. So he would take them there for treatment. One of the people he took was uh, Congressman Berkeley Vidal, and that was back in 1992 or three. 92. And the, so as a result of him curing, and I'm going to say cure all day long, because if you don't have it anymore, that's pretty much cured. And I don't care what the FDA says. You can't say the word cure. Now they have control of my language too. And so um, he cured Congressman Berkeley Vidal. They testified before Congress uh, at the, what was it called? The NIH hearing, NIH hearing, the Office of Alternative Medicine. And within, within a week, the FDA shut down access to Americans because at that point, you could have 
up to three months supply of any medicine from anywhere for personal use that was that came out of the AIDS uh, crisis. So a little later, I testified in 1993, and they were in the formation of the um, Healthcare Reform Act or I don't remember universal coverage. And I said to them, universal coverage um, or managed competition by definition is uh, antitrust. And any entity, person, or corporation, group, or agency, or branch of the government engaging in any activity designed or planning to monopolize the industry is a felony. Well, a week later, they showed up in my house. With, uh, you know, hello, how are you today? And we're gonna. They went through the office and they did their complete evaluation or their investigation, pulled files and so forth. And then after that, ordered me to come to Washington uh, to Rockville to meet with a guy named Paul Goebbels, who was the head of the Institutional Review Board section. And I don't, quite frankly, I don't think some of these guys have any idea what they're doing, but at the FDA, in fact, I don't think the FDA really does much. It's the pharmaceutical companies at the FDA that do their, do the work and the bureaucrats just assemble data or something, I don't know. who knows? But Paul Goebel told me at that meeting, if you don't stop doing what you're doing, we're gonna find you guilty and put you in jail. And in my 40s and in my snotty, you know, I was like all American, I just told them to go after themselves. You know, I don't care. You're killing people. We're not. We're saving lives. I'm not stopping. Well, now I know they're coming after me hard. So a friend of mine named um, Alden Bryant, who was a former Navy SEAL, said, hey, Charlie, I know this guy. His name is Philip Lee, and he's the assistant secretary of health. Do you think it would help if we got a meeting with him? Sure enough, we got a meeting with Dr. Lee, and he couldn't ask for a finer gentleman. I mean, well, the long short of it is, in the in the in the code, there is availability of a waiver. He granted me the waiver to bypass the rules and regulations for approval because it didn't need it anyway. It's homeopathic in nature, and therefore grandfathered in the law. So next comes the court trial. It was a two-day court trial. The first day, we were clearly winning. And then the second day, the judge was called to Washington and had a private meeting with Chief Justice Rehnquist and Bill Clinton. He came back the third day. And when he walked in, he had the upside-down smile. And I said to my lawyer, it's over. As it turns out, I ended up closing my own I did the closing argument. He found me guilty, sentenced me to prison. And uh, I raged myself way, all the way out the building. I just thundered on everybody. And um, then had to uh, appeal. Well, the appeal happened at the exact same time. Timothy Quill, Dr. Timothy Quill from my village in uh, upstate New York was fighting for his patient. Uh, I don't remember her name right now, but. He was fighting for doctor-assisted suicide, and Kevorkian was fighting in the Ninth Circuit. So we were arguing if you have a right to take a life, you must also have the concomitant right to save a life or to save your own life. Well, the long and the short of it is the, the Second Circuit came back with a very clever legal, and if you don't understand how to read legal language, they said, we're reluctant to identify any new fundamental rights. What that really said is you already have that right, but we're not going to affirm it. Go to jail. So 
I did a year in federal prison, three years of probation, and 22 years of hard work to get to where I am now. And um, after the Right to Try Act, I said, that's an open door for me. I'm going to take advantage of it. And I started talking again. So there, here we are today. Mm-hmm. Well, glad you're feeling comfortable to, to get the word out now, for sure. Uh, this is important information for people to know. And it's unfortunate that um, it had to get to that place for you when all it's you know, all you were doing was good work for, for people who were really sick. So now we're looking at a, a situation. We've got uh, a heart disease expert, uh, a virologist. Um, we've got someone that was curing cancer. We've got Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, who is treating people without pharmaceuticals and, and helping people without even participating in the system. Um, and so I'm just asking, what, what in the heck is going on here? Why can't these alternative treatments get out there to the people uh, Dr. Mikovits was saying they just call it anecdotal evidence when you show up and say, I've healed, you know, hundreds of people with this protocol. Why can't, why won't you look at this? Uh, and, uh, so to kind of wrap it all up, let's talk to the lawyer now, uh, Rocco Gelati. Can I say something really quick? Sure. sure. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I listened to Dr. Mikovits and, uh, Larry Clayman and Jace, Jason, uh, and Larry said, uh, all I need is 15 minutes with President Judy and I need to be in front of President Trump for 15 minutes to fix this whole thing. And I thought to myself, what about Ken? Ken wrote the book for God. You know, he, he's he's pretty sharp. He's a good teacher. And um, my idea is this. The FDA, as you said, needs to be defunded. It needs to be. There needs to be firewalls between all the healing arts, Ayurvedic, naturopathic, oriental medicine, um, allopathic and homeopathic, there, there is no arbiter of truth. We're still all still learning. Right. And I'm an eclectic in that regard. I was appointed as the national director of eclectic physicians. And that I still waiting for my first cup of coffee for that. But, um, so the idea would be that if we put a firewall between all these branches and had independent panels and also somehow managed to keep the money out of it, I know that's next to impossible. But there has to also be an education process for Congress because they have not the slightest idea what's going down. Even for President Trump, he's like in a washing machine and not being a trained physician or having to study. I've studied for the last all 40, 50 years on this stuff. So how do you expect any individual to understand the language? Um, so there, I think there has to be that sort of the FDA, FDA has to be divided up. The allopathic industry is just, its first of all, it's an unconstitutional institution. It's out of control. They use their police force to both wipe out doctors and their licenses. And sometimes there's they go missing. They, they're suicided. So there's, that's all I have to say. All right. Well, let's, uh, yeah, let's talk to the lawyer here for a second and see what he has to say. And then maybe we can spend the last half hour talking about uh, getting to the heart of the problem here and talking about solutions. So, Mr. Gelati, what do you have to say about all of this? Seems like these people are in a heap of trouble. Yeah, I I, I have to preface uh, things. Uh, I need to give you a couple of prefacing remarks. Up until the COVID measure, dictatorship that was implemented this year, Canada was in a slightly different position from the United States in the sense that, you know, homeopaths, naturopaths, and even Chinese medical practitioners are licensed doctors in most of our jurisdictions up here. Mm -hmm. And so the Health Canada didn't have the sort of 
draconian grip as the FDA does. And often Health Canada would just adopt FDA-approved drugs. With COVID, that's changed. So now the ministries of health in Canada post-COVID are issuing orders to the uh, medical colleges. And I find that bizarre. So back in October of last year, 2019, when they made changes to the exemptions. If you didn't want to vaccinate your child, you could assert a conscientious religious or medical exemption. And all you had to say was, my child's exempt and you don't have the vaccine. They implemented a new, two new requirements. One was a Soviet sort of Chinese style information session where they, where they berated you into why you should be getting vaccines. And secondly, the new affidavits sworn under oath required that you acknowledge that by not vaccinating, you are putting your child at grave bodily harm or death. Of course, that's what we call a statement against interest. And God, uh, uh, God forbid, if something happened to your child, you could be criminally charged. And that, there was your confession right there. So my client said, well, we see something coming around the corner. Mandatory vaccines are going to be here shortly. We need to nip this in the bud. So I filed a constitutional challenge to that hurdle to exemptions. So now, of course, we see that mandatory vaccinations already in some of your jurisdictions are already a reality are here with the COVID. Now, the entire vaccine challenge, including my challenge that I filed for my clients on the COVID measures, is basically based on the fundamental premise that where it comes to medical treatment, we don't recognize any medical treatment that's not without informed consent. It's a constitutional right. And uh, we have Section 7 of our charter, which is uh, the 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 uh, similar due process clause you have, we have a right to life, liberty, and security of the person. And our Supreme Court has decided that you cannot uh, administer medical treatment without informed consent, except in one very uh, narrow exception. That is, if a child is wheeled into an emergency and death is imminent, for instance, bleeding to death from, from a, uh, a traffic accident, the parents' rights to religion can't trump the rights of that child to life, liberty, and security of the person. And Section 15, which is our equality clause, we have a federal equal, uh, equal right clause. It says the child has independent rights of the parents to their life, liberty, and security of the person, and you cannot discriminate based on age. So if the child's life is imminently at risk and will die without treatment, you can treat the child without the consent of the parents. That's the only narrow exception. And so our, 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 our basic premise in the vaccine challenge that I filed last October and in the COVID measures is that at the end of the day, the person has a right to choose their medical treatment in consultation with their physician on informed consent. Uh, the other basic premise of our constitutional challenge to the COVID measures is that the measures are not scientifically or medically based. They're laced with geopolitical economic considerations that should not be there. And they're obviously there. There's no question about it because the measures are irrational, illogical, they change with the wind, 
and they, they, they just don't make sense on a scientific or medical basis. Now, I lead my life, uh, just a bit of personal disclosure, I lead my life and practice of law for the last 31 years on two maxims uh, enunciated by Friedrich Nietzsche. The first is, you want to be happy, find religion. You want the truth, search. And the second maxim, Nietzsche maxim, I lead my life and legal career with is to all the stone deaf people watching the soul man dance to the music, he must appear to be insane. And what's happened with the FDA and all this corporate pharmaceutical and globalist agenda is it's turned into a religion. Now, if you dare say anything against COVID measures, whether you're an expert in your field or not, some high school kid at YouTube is pulling you down for disinformation. It is worse than the Catholic heresy uh, uh, experienced by Galileo. You know, it's become a religion that you cannot criticize. It's quite disturbing what's happening. And and when I'm I'm lecturing to people about this whole debate, I just say to them, listen, forget about trying to parse the science, because even as an experienced trial lawyer, you know, and I, I feel pretty, I feel pretty confident in learning stuff. I can't parse the science half the time, too, because I have blind spots. I'm not an expert in biology or virology or medicine. And I say to people, forget about parsing the law, too. Just apply your common sense to the political and policy choices made during the course of this pandemic and ask yourself, are they rational and logical, just applying your common sense? For instance, it doesn't make sense that every ma and pa hardware store, shoe store, clothing store had to shut down and lose their business while the Walmarts and the Costcos and the big corporate entities got to sell everything under the sun because they were selling food in the corner and medicine. Is it easier to socially distance at a mall, at a Walmart, or at a mom and pa shop. And so these choices don't make sense. We have, we have a directive from our provincial government for the return to school in September. Kindergarten to grade four, uh, to grade three rather, no masking required. Grade four to grade 12, everybody has to wear a mask. Now, these kindergarten to grade threes are sharing the same space and air ventilation system as the grade fours to 12s, and you say, is this a medical measure or is it a measure of control? Because they know very well, no no kindergarten to about grade three is gonna keep a mask on, but they can indoctrinate and badger uh, grade four and up, nine-year-olds and up to keeping that mask on. This has got nothing, it's not scientifically or medically rational. They don't have to be a doctor to apply your common sense to that. The other, the other things that don't make any, make any common sense is one of our plaintiffs in our COVID measures, enraged by this, that he, he came on as a plaintiff. You know, in the first four months of the pandemic, no masks were required. Suddenly everybody's getting masked. I have my theory as to why, and I plead this in the statement of claim. Now, did, did the science over whether or not masks effectively uh, block an airborne aerosol virus change? Or did the policy and politics change? Mm-hmm. 
It can't be that the science, even I don't need to be a scientist to know there are upteenth studies that were well received in the last three decades that said masks don't work, that all of a sudden in a span of three weeks, the, the, the science has changed. I don't buy that. That's just not rational. And so at the end of the day, we say, look, uh, the government cannot force you to get any medical treatment without your informed consent. You know, and if I could just, uh, you know, reveal a personal, a personal side to this on my part, I, I, have, I have fraternal twin boys who are now 10 years old. And at age four, one of my boys had a vicious reaction to a vaccine. He was fully trilingual at age four, lost all his language in all three languages, still can't speak. And he had lost all his bodily functions. He was fully trained. And the allopathic, the allopathic medical system in Canada and in, in the States, you know, we traveled to New York, Boston, Chicago, top doctors had nothing to offer. The only treatment he got that effectively restored a lot of his cognitive and physical awareness was in Germany, where we, we consulted with the leading integrated functional med medical expert there who administered naturopathic and, nat and homeopathic and Chinese, he was also Chinese medical uh, practitioner licensed. And that's the only real improvement my son uh, off, uh, uh, obtained. So I'm not anti-vax per se, but when they deny these reactions, when these reactions are clearly enunciated in the inserts by the, by the uh, uh, manufacturers and, and nobody denies them, that's why uh, uh, most of the G20 countries, including the states, have a vaccine compensation fund, with the exception of Russia and Canada, ironically. You know, at the end of the day, you say, okay, who, want, who needs to take the risk? Who assesses? Who balances the risk of getting the disease as opposed to getting injured if you're prone to getting injured? And that can't be the state. We, we refuse to accept that the state gets to decide for a child or an adult uh, where the risk lies to their health, either through the purported virus or disease or through the reaction to the vaccine. And I often have this because a lot of people are under this propaganda that you see in the media. People say, you know, well, vaccines, for instance, are totally safe. And I say, look, if you ask me as an absolute proposition, does peanut butter kill? I'd have to say no. But if you're allergic to peanut butter, it can kill you. And the same I say is for anything, including vaccines. So the idea of mandatory vaccination for the planet is abhorrent to my clients and a lot of people. And uh, this morning there was a, a, a poll published in Canada from a Main Street pollster that's recognized and respected, especially for election purposes, where Three in five Canadians now are very extremely concerned about any COVID vaccine and would not properly, would not take it early on and would have a wait and see attitude to see what happens to people who take it early before they took it. Of the 40% who said they'd be willing to take it, half of those stated that they would be extremely worried and concerned about possible reaction. So I think that's a shift that's a shift in Canada because up to now, 
it's only been 15% who are hesitant in asking questions. Now, I, I don't, I don't, I, I didn't mean to narrowly turn this discussion into the vaccine issue, but mm -hmm. that's what's around the corner. Our province in New Brunswick had a bill that was defeated by four votes for mandatory vaccines and other provinces going there. We're, that's where they're going. All the proponents of these COVID measures are advocating for, you know, Bill Gates is wanting 7 billion people around the world vaccinated <laughs> mandatorily and with tr contact tracing and uh, surveillance microchipping. Uh, and that's on the table right now. And so that is abhorrent to the constitutional right to choose. Now, I, I, I successfully argued a, a case in the Supreme Court of Canada in 1999, which uh, your Supreme Court Justice, uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg often talks about Canada's Supreme Court being enlightened. It's the only Supreme Court in the Western world that has this ruling. I, we successfully argued in 1999 that where you're interpreting domestic legislation, whether or not we've ratified a treaty, which is not the law in the States, but whether or not we've ratified an international human rights treaty, the domestic legislation must be interpreted in accordance with those rights, including the Nuremberg Code, for instance. And so our Supreme Court made that ruling. And then in, the, in a subsequent case, went even further and said that international human rights contained in international treaties are the minimal protection to read into our Section 7 charter right, uh, constitutional right to life, liberty, and security of person. So in this COVID, in this COVID uh, lawsuit that I filed, I, in addition to pleading our own constitutional rights, I plead international rights read through Section 7, including the Nuremberg Code against, uh, because this is what it leads to. I mean, human nature is human nature. You know, if you if you can let the state inject you and amputate you and do whatever it wants to you without informed medical consent, uh, it's just abhorrent. You don't have a constitutional democracy anymore. Yeah, and 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 I would add, you know, it's very much in keeping with the ICCPR, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, yeah. and I've argued in my cases that that does apply in the U.S. and they turned that down and said it doesn't. And for reasons I won't get into now because I don't remember all the terms, I think that the Supreme Court ruled incorrectly from something that uh, was ruled before it. But the interesting thing about the ICCPR is that it was initiated under Eleanor Roosevelt trying to make sure that we did not repeat what happened in Germany. And the one instance in the United States where it was spot on, other than my case, was, was a position in the state of Washington that actually experimented on, on prisoners. Uh, and, and the government said that the prisoners were not protected under ICCPR. Therefore, the physician could experiment on prisoners, which is exactly what they were doing in Nazi Germany. Doctors were experimenting on people without their informed consent. Mm -hmm. Well, Doctor, when we argued the case in the Supreme Court, we made the argument that democracy is not an, enough to ensure a safeguard, that you have to measure yourself against international protocol, because mm -hmm. nobody signs an international protocol advocating for genocide, for instance. Mm -hmm. And we said, look, any democratic nation, and I point to the United States, can democratically inflict draconian uh, uh, laws, uh, including slavery, for instance. Mm -hmm. You can't measure 
your domestic legislation based on your own democratic process because people can vote in Nazi regimes. You have to measure the measure of your human rights as against international protocol because that's the only safeguard to a democratic political process going bad. Because I think Hitler won his second election democratically. Yeah, you know, and Rocco, you know Rocco, one thing I would just like to add to that is, is there's, there's, I think uh, the the whole concept of informed consent is outdated, and it's, it seems like it's a 1990s and an early 2000s concept, and I'll tell you why, is because you can be as informed about vaccines as I am. You could have spent 20 years of your life and 40,000 hours and be totally anti-vaccine and be okay with standing on that because I am fully informed. And so, but if I, but if, if you have, if no, if uh, even with me, as much as I know about vaccines, and if you were as fully informed as I am, but you do not have a right to say no, informed consent is irrelevant these days. Because if they give you everything that you could be as, as informed as me, but if I have, if you have no right to say no, and I've often said that the separation between me and my government must begin at the level of my skin. And so if I don't have a right to say no, be informed consent is something that was very important to be informed, to be able to say yes or no, I want this procedure when you had the right to choose and when you had the right to refuse. But if you no longer have that right to refuse or they've making the, the, the I don't think that they're going to make that, the COVID vaccine mandatory, but they are going to make it so uncomfortable right. and take away so many social privileges that right. it's going to be next to impossible to not be vaccinated. But, but Sherry, let me take issue with that. When you take away the inability to say no, you're removing the consent part of informed yeah, it's, consent. It's That's coercion. what that means. Yeah, right. it's external. So if... Consent means a free choice to say no and, and not but have what to if justify you, but what if you, beyond But what if you have no rights to say no, though, is my well, point. Then, you, you don't, then, then they're infringing your consent part of the informed consent. Yeah, so it's not informed well, consent. It's, also, it's not informed well, consent. It's kind of out of the damage that all the pharmaceuticals were doing. Right. Well, here's... informed consent in a homeopathic. Pre, in, up till 1935, 65% of all Americans used homeopathy predominantly. Because Rockefeller Rockefeller moved in and destroyed that industry and funded the birth of the allopathic and heavy duty chemicals, and then we need informed consent because of all the damage. Even till today, a million people die every year in America just from mis mis prescription drugs for no harm. I mean, the, no, not, the, not intentional; just they're taking it and boom. The primary harm behind vaccinating people recognizing that the reason why people are dying with COVID-19 is because they have mounted an immunologic response that is uncontrolled. So vaccinating people, the vast majority of people who are not going to do that, who are like you and I, who are going to get this virus and deal with it and move on, is not going to have any positive beneficial effect. But but vaccinating the groups of people with comorbidities, the overweight, the elderly in the nursing homes, the people with heart disease, with diabetes, with cancer, and the immune-naive are going to mount an immune response once they are vaccinated, and that is what precipitates their dying with COVID to begin with. So by vaccinating these people, you are in fact going to be carrying out Cook's postulate's third step, which is to take the infectious agent 
stick it into a host that doesn't have disease and make them have disease. But for the people that they're going to say, we're protecting them, we are, we are making sure that they don't die. These are the ones that are most at risk from the vaccine. And vaccinating the rest of us is not going to change our immune response because we are already going to be able to respond to it just by naturally getting exposed to it. So this particular vaccination effort goes right in the face of the science of, of, of why these people are dying with COVID-19. They are going to promote an inflammatory thrombotic right. response in the people that are least likely to tolerate it, and they will be responsible for tens, if not hundreds of more deaths, but they will find a way to back out of it and blame but somebody else care. for what they've done. They won't care. <laughs> well, let's, they won't care because they are covered by the PrEP Act. That's it. Oh, That's exactly yeah. it. Let's talk about liability for a second, yeah. because this is yeah. the other half of the informed consent question. It's a, it's the right. other tool we can use after we've been injured, and they've taken that tool as well. Yeah. Right. So the, the 2005 PrEP Act, um, it, which stands for the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act of 2005, that all, came, that all started after 9-11. And I'm going to go through a little bit of the history primarily for the listening audience here. Most of you guys probably know this. But after 9-11, you know, and they had these pseudo-terrorist uh, things and scares about smallpox and anthrax and should we revaccinate re everyone with smallpox and, and was that white powder really anthrax and all of those things. They, they created Project BioShield in 2003, which created an indefinite and permanent funding source for the pharmaceutical company to develop vaccines and therapeutics that were considered to be covered countermeasures uh, for anything that may have been a terrorism attack. That was in 2003. That was also when they rolled forward. It had been utilized back in the 1940s, but they moved forward the EUA, the Emergency Utilization Authority, which means they were allowed to fast track any drug and vaccine without adequate testing. And when it got quote unquote safe enough by whatever standards they decide that to be, whoever makes that to standard, then they can bring, pull it forward into the general public. Currently, just as an aside, the, the one they're now talking about the COVID-19 vaccine. At first they were saying if it prevented infection 50-50, that was close enough. Now they're saying 30%. If it prevents 30%, it's okay to roll it out. That was the EUA that came out in 2003. The pharmaceutical companies were not happy with that. They wanted the complete liability protection they had been afforded by the 1986 General uh, National Vaccine Injury Compensation Act. And so between 2003 and 2005, there were somewhere between 13 and 15 bills that were floated through Congress to try to give them complete liability protection. When they could not get it on December 17th at 11.30 at night on a Saturday night, uh, Senator Bill Fritz from Tennessee went over to the House side and got the, the Speaker of the House, Dennis, Dennis Hassard at the time, to go along with him and to attach this, little, this piece of legislation. They had boiled it down to 42 pages and to smack it on the back of a defense appropriation bill that had already been signed off and all the members had gone home. It was called Division E at that time. And after the first of the year, that got rolled out and be called the PREP Act. And what the PREP Act actually does is to give them a far beyond what the 1986 Injury Compensation Protection Act did. I mean, in 1986, they got protection for any vaccine that was put into the pediatric schedule. The 2005 PREP Act not only protects them against a pediatric schedule, but any vaccine in adult, 
and any vaccine, medic medication, uh, technology, software, anything that is all created under the umbrella of this 2005 PrEP Act, which by the way, was actitude activated for COVID-19 on March 17th of this year of 2020. It was written into the federal register and will stay there until which time the, the head of HHS or the subsequent head of HHS or the assistant head of HHS says we are no longer in an emergency, which the way they're setting this up, it will be indefinitely and in perpetuity. So they've got complete liability for anything that they create. And if it kills a bunch of people, like what Richard, you're saying, what Judy said, what a lot of people said, if it doesn't kill them, it causes great harm, cytokine storms, whatever else it does to their, their bodies. The only way that there is any compensation afforded to those people for any of the injuries that they've experienced is for a group of them to be able to get together and go to the U.S. Attorney General, in the, the acting Attorney General, and convince them him that this that this was created under an act of willful misconduct, which, as you guys legally know, is next to impossible to prove. And so they've got, they can get away with anything for anything that's been labeled a covered countermeasure. So they don't care. I mean, they can continue to create childhood vaccines with uh, with impunity. There has never been any incentive to make it any, any clearer, any more safe, any, uh, any uh, okay, we haven't had uh, polio in the Western Hemisphere since, since uh, 1994, but we still give Western Hemisphere children four vaccines of polio. Why? You know, we, we've never had any incentive to do anything different with the schedule, anything different to do anything to make the vaccine safer, less toxic, none. So now they've got the level of protection. This 2005 PrEP Act actually takes the 1986 compensation program of protection and puts it on steroids. Because not only is it about vaccines, it's about technologies, it's about microchipping, it's about anything that they want to label to be covered under COVID-19. Well, in Canada, Sherry, the, the COVID-19 puts the, those lies under the microscope because it's ironic. Russia and Canada are the only G20 countries that have not had a national vaccine compensation fund. In Canada, uh, health is a juris uh, provincial jurisdiction. Quebec is the only province that has a vaccine compensation fund. 1985, there was a case that went to the Supreme Court of Canada uh, with a vaccine injured, severely vaccine injured child, the Supreme Court of Canada said, yes, the vaccine caused the injury, but the vaccine manufacturers are not liable because the insert, insert warned you. Since you have a right to inform consent, you didn't have to take the vaccine for your child. Therefore, they're not liable. And of course, the doctor's not liable under medical malpractice because in order for the doctor to be liable in medical malpractice, they have to be doing something outside the normal practice of most doctors. And of course, most doctors are just giving out these vaccines like candy. So nobody was liable. So Quebec said, well, this can't be right. The child gets injured and nobody's liable. So they put in a vaccination compensation fund. But now some provinces are promoting the idea of complete immunity to the vaccine companies over the COVID vaccine. Why? Because they're going to remove the informed consent. If you can refuse, if you refuse the vaccine, liability is not an issue. It's not an issue now. Buyer beware is the law in Canada right now because you don't have to take a vaccine if you don't want. But if they force it on as a mandatory measure, then they're going to have to immunize the companies from lawsuit. And we, we plan to challenge uh, the immunity from lawsuit here under our charter. 
I, I know that Judy maybe just only has a few more minutes left. I wanted you to speak to the uh, the aspect of the anecdotal evidence. It seems like even with this hydroxychloroquine debate that's happening, at least in my mind, there's a mountain of this anecdotal evidence, which is doctors saving hundreds and thousands of people's lives using this protocol. And yet, and this kind of speaks to to what Roka was saying earlier. It's become such a politicized debate. This is one of the things that I'm like, I don't, there's enough information out there that if I get sick, I'm looking for someone to give me one of these uh, hydroxychloroquine and zinc protocols. Um, and isn't that just a choice that I'm going to make between my doctor and I? I don't even understand why it has to be a national debate. But then what you were talking about is this. So after the debate becomes politicized, then no matter how many times a doctor saves a person's life, the system is just saying, well, it's anecdotal evidence. So, you know, we don't have to pay attention to that. And they just kick the can down, down the road until theoretically there's going to be some perfect, uh, randomized controlled study that's going to happen. It might take six months or a year, and then we're going to maybe think about doing it. But can you speak to that, how they use this, you know, anecdotal evidence idea to, to, disregard the fact that you're saving lives here, you know, no matter what the diagnosis or treatment protocol, whatever treatment protocol you may be using, as soon as it starts to save lives, you know, why don't we use it more then? Because it's working. Instead, they call it anecdotal evidence. They ignore you. Sure. And and it's not anecdotal evidence at all. As we know, it's 40 years in this uh, hydroxychloroquine, 70 years um, WHO, World Health Organization, essential medicine. But just to flip it around to talking a little bit about vaccine court, which was what I was doing, um, you know, the last five years, and I say was, and it's detailed in, in on pages 119 to 130 or so of Plague of Corruption. You know, they're doing the same thing in, in, uh, vaccine court. They're saying, oh no, that's anecdotal. There's no evidence of a cytokine storm. There is no susceptible individual. And and they're and they're this is just it's criminal fraud in both cases. Mm-hmm. And it's been that way. And and this is the my biggest um thing right here is not just the COVID vaccine, but the flu vaccine. And so the people who are at most at risk and the masks now as Rocco was saying, I have to now um, have an independent a doctor for an airlines um, interview me, and I have to essentially give away all my rights and acknowledge I'm hurting me or other people, you know, and, and I can't wear a mask. So I can't travel to meetings. They've infected me with the virus. 99% of the people, as we know, are infected with these viruses. And these are HIV, XMRBs, these deadly viruses. If I fly across country without a mask, I will pass out without appropriate measures. And now I can't get on a plane and do in life, liberty and anything else. And it's the same thing in vaccine court with anecdotal evidence we've proven over and over and over again. And the court just corrupts everything, destroys our reputation, refuses to pay the lawyer, guarantees the client will lose if they use Mikevitz and Rossetti. And we're saying cytokine storm, exactly what COVID-19 is, and they're who's susceptible and that doesn't exist. So the first people who will die with a flu vaccine, with, with a flu vaccine, with any vaccine at all, are those that are already injured and who have been infected because of this animal tissue. And and again, they, they, this was where Bruchewitz's decision in 2000 
um, 11, um, the Bruchewitz decision removed all liability because previously to that in this Supreme Court decision, previous to that, if you knew a design defect, oh, mixing animal tissues, it, we proved that mixing animal tissues, you were transmitting these di di um, dormant viruses and they could cause disease. So the government had always said, no, we acknowledge that they're there, but they don't hurt anybody. We proved they hurt somebody and, and beyond a shadow of a doubt, really. And now 25, 30 million Americans, they're going to die um, with any vaccine. Um, in, in with COVID, with the mask. So, so now I'm denied the ability to breathe air and save my life when the government infected me and admitted it as, as described in both of our books. And then I'll be used politically too. Correct, and, and it has been. That's why they keep shutting me down and calling it conspiracies. I have proof against Fauci. He's done this to HIV infected um, forever. Um, I know I have to go. My phone's ringing. <laughs> okay, so I'll say I'll leave right. that discussion for later. And thanks so much. Okay, yeah, Perfect. thank thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Great. Thanks, Doug. Another favorite is we've seen no evidence. Uh, do we want to talk? Uh, do we want to talk about that? What does the anecdotal evidence do in court, Rocco? Like w when you're seeing, you know, the, these treatment protocols that are working, and you try to argue about what's happening, or, or even uh, like uh, like Dr. Megavitz was saying, you know, proving that people are getting injured in this situation, and they'll just discount it. Well, you know, anecdotal evidence is is really a term that's used by politicians and medical bodies because you know, in a courtroom. Your, your burden is on a balance of probability. If on a balance of probability you prove something, uh, you know, you've proved it. Uh, I like, I don't know if you've seen the interview with the president of Madagascar when he was interviewed by BBC and the French network. I don't know if you saw that a few, uh, seven, eight. You have. And, you know, they were saying the same thing to him. Well, all your evidence is anecdotal. He said, no, it's not. Everybody we treat got better. Nobody's died. How is that anecdotal? Uh, people forget that the, 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 the evidence of the atrocities under Nazi Germany was also anecdotal. Eyewitness reports, you observe, and actually WHO accepts, you know, the, the trials are only for, for pharmaceutical drugs. If you're using something that's not a pharmaceutical drugs, they accept observation of results as evidence. They should be accepting that. So if you observe results and they're widespread, well, that's evidence. You know, you, you, and, 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 and in, in a courtroom, for instance, you may not be able to, there's a distinction. You can splice the hair and say that the evidence that they got better is not necessarily 100% due to A or B, but you can't deny the evidence that observing them, they had it and they did get better. Those are two different issues. Yeah, it is interesting to me. I've always thought about that. I mean, people try to try to poo-poo anecdotal evidence, but yet it's like it's still evidence. You know, it might not be the double-blind study, you know, completely controlled, but it's you know, it's still evidence. And when there's a lot of anecdotal evidence, well, that's gotta that's gotta be good for something, and it really is. Um, I, well, I think, when we have expert witnesses, for instance, Doug, in a courtroom, right, mm -hmm. and and uh, uh, two 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 experts who are of the same weight come with diametrically opposite views, you say that the evidence is inconclusive. 
three experts come in with the same opinion, all of a sudden it's an incontrovertible fact. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. And then the what experts phenomenon. are you listening to? Right. I mean, that's the other thing they say in the right. mainstream media. Oh, you're not listening to experts. Well, who are all you guys? You, you, right. know? <laughs> like, you can only well, listen to the experts the government lets you listen to. When, right. when we were told that 714X didn't have a double blind study, my answer to that is you've got in the last 30 years or the last 25 years, maybe 30 million people have succumbed in America alone to chemo radiation, to chemo and radiation. And right. we have people that did not succumb after chemo and radiation by the use right. of medicine. So We've, why uh, do I need to do a study? There's the, it's right there. The evidence is there. We've uh, we've got to kind of wrap this up, guys. I know Dr. Tenpenny uh, has got to go, and uh, Rocker Gelati uh, wanted to kind of wrap it up around one thirty-ish here. So um, we just want to spend a few minutes kind of cream wrapping fan, it up. Doug. Doug, it's Gelati. Gelati is ice cream oh. in Italian. Everybody yeah, likes so- that. That's I, okay. You know what's funny? I saw that. I saw that in your name, and I was like, I hope I don't make that mistake. And I totally. That's all right. It's all right. Sorry. You're <laughs> anyway, let's take a few minutes and and just kind of wrap it up, Doctor Tenpenny. Maybe do you have a few things you want to say before before you take off? Um, just primarily that people need to understand, really need to listen to everything that has been said here about the medical background and about the legal background. I mean, there's so many people that are going to be pressured into getting this vaccine. You know, this COVID pass thing that there, I just got an alert this morning, you know, they're, they're, they're launching in September. This is a multinational, multi-billion dollar fund company. How long have they been planning this? How long have they been planning this, that they can take a drop of your blood at the airport now and scan it to say whether or not you are infected, whatever that means, or you're positive, whatever that means. And now they've also captured your DNA. And so, um, you know, and, and, and how many people are going to do that in order to travel, have their job, go to a restaurant? You know, that's what I was saying is I do not think that they will say, yes, this is mandatory. You have to take it. But they're going to make it so unbelievably uncomfortable to function in society without it that the vast majority of people are going to roll over. Um, my plan is absolutely not. I mean, I will have to find a way to function outside of society if I have to do it. And I think there's millions of people like this because I believe that what's in that vaccine is more than just um, what's going to be written on the package insert. And, you know, my particular, uh, my Christian persuasion won't allow me to, to be marked by that beast. Yeah. Rocco, do you want to make, let's, let's wrap it up with a conversation about the Nuremberg Code just for a second, because things are getting so, it's getting so dangerous. And I, at the very beginning of all of this, I was telling people, I mean, even when the shelter in place came down, I said, this is, you know, this is scientific experimentation. They don't have proof that shelter in place or mask wearing or whatever. I mean, you can kind of go down the list that they're imposing these things on us without asking for our informed consent about these things. And so can we visit the Nuremberg Code just for a second and, and, and let people know why this is so important and why they came out with this after World War II to try to prevent exactly what had happened in, in the Nazi regime? Sure. I mean, under the Nazi regime, they were conducting vile eugenics experiments, physical medical experiments, experiments without obviously the, the, the consent of the, the Jews, the Roma, the dis- disabled, the homosexuals, and the other minorities that they targeted for extermination, they were conducting vicious and intrusive medical experimentation uh, without their consent. Now, people say, oh, you can't compare this with, with, with Nazi Germany. 
I, I agree, except it's a matter of degree. It's not a matter of quality. It's a matter of quantity. It's a matter of degree. But it's just as intrusive. It's just as offensive. And we don't know what the long-term effects are going to be. And, uh, and so what I say to people when I, when I talk about this issue and debate this issue is I say you should treat any vaccine with the same seriousness as making a decision as whether you and your spouse should have an abortion. You wouldn't just line up and not question it and listen to the FDA on whether or not you should have an abortion. Mm -hmm. You would talk to your physician, you would talk to, your, to yourself and then decide, uh, especially if you're the woman, right? You should take this with the same seriousness. Yeah, trying to get back to a place where there's just more power in the hands of, of the physicians to do uh, treatment protocols that they feel are working and the patients to uh, be allowed to do these kinds of treatments in, in, uh, in the conditions under informed consent doctrine, because it seems to me like this is the only way that things evolve. If not, we just end up in the same quagmire that we're in right now with hydroxychloroquine. I, you know, there's a part of me that's like, why do people care so much if I want to do this protocol over that protocol? If I'd rather do zinc and hydroxychloroquine than remdesivir and ventilators, you, you know, that's just my choice. Why is it so important? And the fact that it's gotten into this political sphere and it's just almost like everybody assumes that it's somebody else's business, you know, but it's like, this is a personal choice. I have a question Especially in the, the context, doctor. the doctor's given a license to prescribe medicine to his patients. Why is anybody involved in that? Yeah, he wants the prescription. Why should the state be involved? If as long as the client is happy, Rocco? consider the situation we have where we've legalized marijuana, and we're talking about legalizing cocaine and heroin. Yet you can't take a medicine that your doctor suggests. It's nuts. Well. You know, and excuse it, me, guys. It looks like Dr. Tenpenny's got to take off oops. as well. We'll hear from the. We'll we'll just kind of be wrapping this up, but we can go ahead and uh, and hear from the last a couple of you here. But let's let let's thank uh, Dr. Tenpenny for coming and really appreciate your input to the program. I know you're extremely busy, so appreciate your time. Thanks Perfect. a lot. Welcome. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. You. Yeah. No, I was I, I was going to say, you know, doctors are supposed to be allowed to use a medicine that has already been approved by the FDA for one purpose, for anything else that they think it's applicable for treating a patient with. Uh, an example that I've given before is is a drug that uh, is called nifedipenoprocardia. And when we first had it, it was for chest pain, for angina, for people with heart disease. And yet we noticed that people whose blood pressures went very, very high, that they were at risk of having a bleed into their brain from the blood pressure. If we took this capsule and punctured it with a needle and squirted the medicine under their tongue, their blood pressure would come down, saving their lives and saving them from having a, a stroke. That's not what the drug was approved for, but it was approved for chest pain due to heart disease. Mm -hmm. Doctors are supposed to have the right to use any approved medication for any reason that they believe it's appropriate. So for any government agency to interfere with a physician using hydroxychloroquine, if the physician and patient believe that is the right medicine for the patient. I, I, I don't see where legally they have the right or authority to do that. And the ability for them to now push this agenda 
is uncomfortable to me because I have to ask, why are they so now for this? They're not pushing it for any other disease, for any other treatment across the board. You know, doctors are using lots of medications for other than the primary purpose for what the FDA used it for every day in this country, every day in Canada, every day throughout the world. But hydroxychloroquine is where they want to draw the, draw the line in the sand. And you have to ask why this is the case. And the only answer that stands out glaring at people is because it's now a political debate in an election year mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they make it political we didn't even really have time to touch on the corruption aspect of all of this they make it yeah. political and then they argue we're arguing what should be a personal choice and who's going to win the argument well probably the people that have more skin in the game in washington dc the ones that are yeah. greasing the wheels and the ones that are getting the big fat government contracts right it doesn't matter what the rest of us think we're having this argument and it's it's purposeless. Yeah. Like what they don't, Fauci doesn't care what I think, right? I can tell him I'd rather have this other treatment, but he's going to give the remdesivir contract to Gilead Sciences no matter what. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in the back of the mind, you have to wonder why it's not processing that they're going, but if I'm wrong and this hydroxychloroquine works and I'm very successful at blocking it and my family member or person I am close to now comes down with COVID, I've blocked them from getting a medicine that may very well save, stop them from having to be hospitalized. In the back of their mind, they ought to have that doubt because there are so many things in science and medicine that I constantly in the back of my mind am going, what am I missing? Am I am I thinking this through clearly? Could the right. other people be right? You know, for them not to be somewhat cognizant of that, I I, I find that unbelievable. Well, I, I wonder how many of these guys and their families in Washington are taking hydroxychloroquine yeah. and zinc prophylactically. They be, yeah, they get know? it behind the scenes. You right. bet they do. Yeah, yeah. Well, on the same note, uh, Dr. Fleming, how does he live with all the death? From AZT back in the late eighties and early nineties. Hey, listen, you know when 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 Judy's talking about that. I was in medical school when HIV hit the market, you know, and they would talk about what was really going on. And my classmates and I would go, my God, we've got more patients in our university hospital than they say are in the entire state. And we're looking at what's really going on with these people and trying to come to grips with, you know, in those days, I was making the argument that AIDS would be heterosexually transmitted before the decade was out. And I was being told I didn't know how to read research data. And I didn't know what was going on. Come back in a decade, they'd show me the error of my ways. It is just amazing how when evidence is sitting there in front of people, when they decide they do not want to take a look at it, they will do anything mm -hmm. to prevent the truth from getting out on, on anything that they're opposed to the truth getting out about. Well, and I think what Rocco's saying about when it once it becomes political and then the mainstream media gets involved and then it seems like like overwhelmingly everybody agrees whatever the mainstream media is telling us and the doctors themselves are already starting to approach the research with this confirmation bias they just picked up from the media. They're not being the objective healthcare, you know, physician yeah. scientists that they should be because they've already been influenced. And and unfortunately, these <clears throat> corporate actors have enough money to buy all the media they need to push their agenda. You know what we call that in medical school? Uh, Roko for a second, if I may. Mm -hmm. 
In medical school, we call that mental masturbation. Right. It made you feel better about the story you were telling yourself, and only you felt better, and there was a wonderful glow afterwards, but it didn't change anything. Yeah. Yeah. If I just say one last thing before we we knock off. Sure. My my mother, I'm sorry. Well, Charles wanted to ask you a question real quick, too. Sure, go ahead. I was going to point out that in in, uh, Quebec, where Nason was out in uh, Rock Forest, in 1989, they took him to court for killing a patient, which, of course, he did not kill anybody. She died because she was terminal. And he won his case. And as a result of winning his case, they approved 714X in Canada with the caveat that, okay, we'll let you have your win. But in order to use that medicine, the doctor has to first, the patient has to be terminal. Then he has to get a prescription. It's the know that it exists. He has to get a prescription from the doctor who put him in the terminal state, and then he can have the medicine. So they locked it. They gave it to him, but then took it away by locking it up. Right. Right. Yeah. Oh, what, 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 in Canada, the problem is that uh, probably it's like your state. I don't, uh, the state's healthcare is an exclusive jurisdiction of the provinces. And part of this global drive is to centralize it through these emergency powers. So that right. they're all on board through the federal government, but you know, my to the to the day she died when she was ninety five, my mother used to always, you know, express the cliche that if you want to make God laugh, make a big big plan. One of my concerns <laughs> about this dynamic that the government is engaging in with the uh, the, the dogma trying to make medicine and science a dogma rather than what it should be, and that's a, a never ending search for better ways to treat people and to cure people is that you're starting to see that people are going to have a general distrust of medical practitioners in the same way we've seen them to distrust politicians. If if that happens, that's going to be a disaster because we get through this and people say, you know, that was a load of horseshit. I'm never going to trust the medical profession again. Then we're even in a worse scenario than we were before this COVID pandemic. Right. And that's one of my fears is that is a very possible human reaction to all of this. Sure. Sure. I mean, you're already seeing a lot of skepticism. I actually think they went too far with this uh, uh, attacking the hydroxychloroquine thing, because I'm seeing a lot of people that ordinarily trust the system starting to kind of question what's going on with that narrative. Right. Um, and certainly once the vaccine comes out, we'll see. But as you said earlier, the polling is already showing, you know, 25% or more saying there's no way I'm going to take this thing. Yeah. And, you know, if that starts to get around 40, 50%, it's going to be a pretty large chunk of the population that's starting to, to really doubt the foundations of, of this system as it's moving forward. So, But Doug, the benefit of your program and programs like this is that when the people listen to it, they realize this is not a unanimous consensus and that physicians are disagreeing with it. And absent them being able to hear that, they would then be able to have that complete distrust. But knowing that physicians and researchers are not completely agreeing with that is critical to stopping this this complete distrust of the system. Having them step out on the front of the Supreme Court steps like they did this last week and going, we are not in agreement with what is coming out from, from NIAID and Fauci and the rest is important. These are the things that are the steps that, frankly, did not happen in Nazi Germany, to the best of my knowledge. This is one distinct difference. 
month. The Nazi, the German doctors went along with it almost from day one to <coughs> just acquiesce and, and go through it. But programs like this, and program and, and opportunities like them standing on the steps in front of the Supreme Court provides a unique opportunity for physicians and healthcare providers and people that are interested to, to step back and attorneys supporting that recognition to step forward and say, American people, this is not a done deal. We are not going to go gently into that good night. We are not going to become the equivalent of, of Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. We are going to stand up and we're not going to go gently into that good night. It is amazing to me, this whole thing about this expert consensus that's been pushed. Like most people have this feeling that almost all, if something has been proven by science, then all science, all scientists just believe it. And then there's an expert consensus and then it's true. But to your point, Rocco, what science really is, is a process. And it's a process that's got to be entered into with a completely open mind because things are changing on the ground all the time. And that is exactly you know, what I wanted to kind of point out with this program is that we need to have a healthcare system that can, is flexible and can adapt with new scientific discoveries. They can have respect for, for the minority opinion and have an open and honest debate and then have a system that's set up based on informed consent, where if you have a doctor that you trust as a layperson, you go to a doctor that you trust, they give you the information about the treatment protocol, you look it over for yourself, and then you choose to to proceed with that protocol, well, this is a system that can that can adapt and move and change. Um, but the system as it is right now, which is based on fabricating a, an expert consensus with the mainstream media and then imposing this, this dogmatic system from above so that we all have to participate whether we like it or not, and, and any, you know, doubting of this treatment protocol or, or you know, or trying to use a, a different methodology is just completely poo-pooed to the point where it's not even a legal thing, but people are being shamed. You know, if yeah. you don't, if you don't yeah. go along with it, there's a, there's like a moral, social, cultural component where it's almost like this new religion is out there. No, no but the, the people are, people are embarrassed to remember, acknowledge the, the, the frailty of any, of any endeavor, including science and medicine. How long has it been since we thought homosexuality, the, the authorities d- deemed it a medical disease? Sure. It hasn't been that long. Oh, yeah. You know, I remember when I was a cardiology fellow, we had a couple of our lab techs come up and they came up to to one of the other cardiology fellows and myself separately because they were sick and they wanted to be seen by somebody. And I sat them down, the one guy I took care of, and I said, okay, so how long have you been gay? And he said, what? I said, how long have you been gay? And he says, you know, I'm gay. I was like, Look, that's not the point. I need to know what I'm working with and your risk factors for having HIV and other things. That's my my goal. He says, you're not judging me. It's like, okay, wait a minute. Me, doctor, you, patient, you know, not judging, you know. And he said, please don't tell the attendings because they'll fire us if they find out. It's like, oh, my God, you know, are we really living in this era? But, yeah, this, this, the barbaric attitudes are really, really hard to kill, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Stupidity and ignorance. And, you know, owing to the fact that most of us here have been put through the mill, one thing you can say is that if you're on target 
and you're against the establishment, which has a vested interest in the party line they have, they will come after you, and they'll come after you with a vengeance. Right. Uh, Richard, uh, Oscar Wilde said, when you speak the truth, you're bound to be found out. <laughs> oh, absolutely. You know, uh, Winston Churchill said, you got enemies, good. It means you stood for something at some point right. in time in your life. Right. Yeah. Well, this note of science, the, the science is uncom- uncompromising truth. Right. Period. Not right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's what makes some of this stuff hard. I mean, you know, what Judy and I and Charles have gone through, what makes it hard is when you're following the truth and you know it and you get attacked. Um, I'll speak for me. There's a point in time in my life that I was completely humiliated and embarrassed to talk about this because I felt ashamed that I'm, you know, I, I had a stigma on me because of this this court case. Right. I've come to realize it's what it really was was a confirmation of how desperate the other side was to come after somebody pointing out the truth. And you know, Richard and. Two of my biggest seismic wins as a lawyer, one in 2014, where I literally constitutionalized the Supreme Court of Canada by challenging a judge who had been just sworn in saying, you, you are not eligible to sit there. Yeah. I was called crazy and they called me, they called for my disbarment and I won seven to zero at the Supreme Court. So it's always, it's not restricted to the medical profession. I think it's a human failing we have. We're an alpha species and we just get on that fearful bandwagon, right? And it's an echo and it's a chorus and, you know, it's hard for rationality to take over, but we always have to struggle for that. You know, it's a little bit easier to follow a dogma too than it is to recognize that life is just a big unknown and we're all doing the best we can. (laughs) And so I think it is, it it just, you know, these systems have a tendency to gravitate towards everybody follow this dogma. If you don't follow it, then you're wrong. Um, And unfortunately history has showed us over and over again, which is why, you know, I wanted to get into that conversation about the Nuremberg code and Nazi Germany. Like the more and more you become dogmatic, actually, it just takes you to a dark place. We have to have the freedom to, to seek out these alternative treatment protocols uh, and different, just different ideas, no matter what industry you're in or else we get stuck in a rut and then, you know, start, start to feel justified even in punishing or shaming others who think differently than we do. Right. And, and but once the herd goes there, Doug, uh, you get back to that brilliant insight by Mark Twain, when he said, it's a lot easier to fool somebody then convince him that he's been fooled. Yeah, absolutely. You know, absolutely. once once the herd has been fooled, then there's that embarrassment factor saying, oh, you know what? I think I made a mistake. Yeah. yeah. That's a hard road to climb. Yeah, it is. Well, I think we better wrap it up on that one, guys. That's a good place to end. And, and we've had a, a couple of people drop out already. So, um, but that was a great conversation. I think we got the point across that we were really looking for, which is to show, you know, the doctors that were on the panel uh, the situations you come up against when you when you try to butt this establishment and it's just overwhelming. And thanks, Rocco, for your legal perspective, because you were able to really wrap it up and kind of kind of show, uh, you know, just exactly how dangerous it is when we start going down this dogmatic path into this place where, uh, you know, legally our hands start to get tied and then we no longer live in a free society anymore. And the repercussions of that uh, can be so negative. Uh, we can only hope that 
people will listen to this and start paying attention. And uh, this whole COVID-19 thing can, can kind of become something that's in our rearview mirror instead of something that becomes uh, our daily life for the next two decades here or however long they seem to, you know, they seem to be pushing a, 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 an agenda that could be going on for quite a long time. So thank you all for being on the program. Really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. It was wonderful. Thank yeah. you. Nice, nice meeting you all. Thank you. Good to meet yeah. everybody. Thank, thank you, you, Rocco. Thanks for coming guys. You guys take Bye. care. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, everybody. I want to thank you for listening to that episode of this roundtable discussion. Um, probably one of the most fascinating and important conversations that I've ever been a part of. It was just such an honor to talk with Judy Mikevitz, to talk with Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, and the other people that were a part of the uh, of the of the roundtable discussion this time around, um, just to be sitting with so many experts and have so much knowledge there at my fingertips was actually a, quite an honor. So uh, I hope we did. I was able to do justice um, to to the wealth of information that was there at my hands uh, for the last couple of hours while we had that discussion. Also, being able to hear from uh, Rocco Gelati about the legal ramifications of everything that's going on and what really needs to happen as we get back to this concept of informed consent. I mean, I think it's just so important that doctors start to feel like they have the freedom to be able to try treatment protocols that have been shown to work according to their expertise. They share the information with the patient, the patient under a situation where they feel they have informed consent, they do their own research, they talk to their doctor, and they make the choice to go forward with the treatment protocol. All of these rules and regulations and these government agencies that are there pretending like they're protecting the citizens from charlatans and quacks and all these terms that we've heard over and over again uh, seem actually to be placed there in terms of this concept of regulatory capture uh, by the very corporations that have so much power over the decisions as to what treatments are allowed and what are not. And guess what treatments are allowed? Well, the ones that happen to be the most profitable, not the ones that easily and cheaply solve the problem and uh, you know provide treatments to patients that are really sick. Uh, I think that this problem has become really, really endemic. There needs to be a way for healthcare to evolve in a way where people can see this is a protocol that works. I'm going to try this protocol. The patient agrees to try the protocol. It seems like it's working. I've got all the information right in front of me. I'm making my own personal choice. Let's go for it. Um, I mean, like I mentioned in the introduction, just this concept that we're supposed to have a huge national debate every time somebody comes up with a treatment that's working for their patients so that, you know, somehow, like, it's like the ship has gotten so big, it's impossible to steer. There's a handful of people at the top. I think it's really easy to see their connections with the corporate system. Um, every time without fail, these people are promoting the most expensive treatment protocols, no matter whether they work or not. And most of the time, they really seem not to work. Um, we've seen time and time again where Big Pharma's been busted pushing these expensive treatments that, that people will take these drugs for the rest of their lives. Eventually, their liver gets out, goes out. Um, people are dying from taking the drugs. There was a Johns Hopkins University study that showed that just taking pharmaceutical drugs was the third largest cause of death in the United States. That came out in 2004. So we've got to start taking things like this into account. How is it that so many people are dying from these drugs 
And yet when new treatment protocols are coming out, this new hydroxychloroquine and zinc protocol, this is about zinc, guys. Zinc. It's not some fancy drug, but that's exactly it. It can't be patented, and it doesn't cost very much money. So Big Pharma's not making anything off zinc. So we're not having a conversation about zinc in the corporate media that, of course, gets paid billions of dollars every year by Big Pharma advertising dollars. Um, so let's really start to sit down and think, and let's really listen to what these experts on the panel that we've shown you today have to say about this problem. Because I think that until we figure out a way to make healthcare evolve with the moment, with you know, as doctors come up with treatments and doctors need to feel a, a freedom to be able to experiment a little bit. I mean, I get that we're dealing with people's health here, and there certainly is a possibility of things going wrong. Um, but God, it's got to be better than the system that we've got right now. Things are going wrong all the time. We're hearing these statistics that 80 plus percent of people on ventilators are dying when they go into the hospital with COVID, and yet they continue to put people on ventilators months after we're, we've discovered that this isn't working. Why can't the system evolve? Why is it not flexible enough to change when things aren't working and, and change and evolve when things are working? I mean, this is the question that we should be having on the national stage, not whether people should be taking zinc or not to, to maybe protect themselves from, from the COVID you know, virus and the COVID disease. So a couple of things that really came up for me when, when Dr. Mikovits mentioned that anecdotal evidence is simply ignored. And the public has regurgitated this over and over again. I keep hearing people saying, we need to have this super high bar, these double-blind, randomized, controlled trials against placebo before we can adopt to a treatment protocol that may be working while we're in the midst of a pandemic. I mean, come on. We've got thousands and thousands of, of examples of people whose lives have been saved by doctors all over the world who have been using this alternative protocol. Isn't that convincing enough? And why does it have to be convincing enough for Dr. Fauci or the CDC? Why can't it just be convincing enough for you to say, this is what I feel like doing. So I'm going to go and I'm going to find a doctor that's using this protocol. I've learned enough about it. I've made my choice. This is the protocol that I want. Why don't we live in a world where we can just do that? Why do we have to have a conversation about every treatment that we might choose and then some kind of national debate so that what the majority of people are going to decide? Or are we all just trying to convince the CDC and Dr. Fauci? And those guys don't want to change, so it doesn't matter how much we talk about it. They don't want to change. We can't change their mind. And why are we asking them for permission for our own personal health care choices in the first place? It just blows my mind. The second point I really wanted to make is when Dr. Sherry Tenpenny brought up this idea of liability. This PrEP Act that came out, I think it was in 2004, that really, in a state of emergency like we're in right now, it removes liability not just from the vaccine manufacturer, but every other industry that's involved in producing anything that's attached to the state of emergency. So right now, these corporations can literally get away with murder, and you don't have any legal protections to jump back and say, hey, I was harmed by your actions. You were well aware that your actions were harmful. And now I can sue you. Now I can ask to get some money back or something back for the harm that was caused. This is, you know, Legalese 101, as Rocco Gelati would have you know. 
You have the right to inform consent. You have the right to say no to protocols that you don't believe in. And you have the right to say yes to protocols that you do believe in. And when you take away the liability from these guys, then that's the protection they're trying to impose on us medical protocols that may well hurt us and we don't have the redress to go to a court and say hey you know we want a little something back for the harm that was caused so it's a free-for-all for for these corporations and um you know for those of you who believe the government is protecting you i think um maybe looking up the idea of regulatory capture is something that you should do because we are now witnessing where big pharma is lobbying congress paying billions of dollars getting laws passed that protect them that protect them from liability And then the rotating door concept where a lot of these guys that are working at these regulatory agencies then end up getting fat cat jobs at the big pharmaceutical companies once they've you know, made it difficult for for competition to arise from other treatment protocols and push these protocols for these corporations that are making them billions of dollars. We're talking about an industry that is almost 20% of the United States GDP. Every American is paying almost 20% of their income on health care. This is a problem. What is going on? And we have some of the worst health care in the developed world. So uh, I really hope you're paying attention to what the doctors we had on our panel today had to say, uh, what the lawyer had to say, um, because I think that uh, the more that we see this whole COVID thing going forward, uh, the more and more this is going to become a problem unless people start to stand up and say, listen, this is a personal choice. The treatment that I receive is a personal choice between my doctor and myself. I have confidentiality, and I can make my own choices as an adult based on informed consent. As long as your doctor is being honest with you, giving you all the information, and then allowing you to make this personal choice, we should be allowed to do that. That um, is not too much to ask. I think it might even be the definition of what it means to live in a free society. So uh, something to take very seriously. There is a reason why they put informed consent into the Nuremberg Code, which was made after uh, the international community came together to analyze exactly what happened in Nazi Germany to allow for medical experimentation on a lot of innocent people that resulted in a lot of a lot of pain, a lot of torture. This was a lot of Dr. Frankenstein behavior. When you let these guys off the hook, this is the kind of stuff they start to engage in. A lot of these big pharmaceutical companies that are at at it today are the same pharmaceutical companies that were doing this back in the 1930s and 40s in Nazi Germany. So let's take this very seriously. I want to thank you again for listening to this episode and uh, we'll see you back. I think I've got next week off, but in a couple of weeks for the 14th roundtable discussion. Thanks again and you all have a great day. Take care. The opinions and ideas expressed in this roundtable discussion do not necessarily reflect the views of Transparent Media Truth, but only those of the speakers participating in the discussion. Under the Copyright Disclaimer within Section 107 of the Copyright Act of 1976, 
Allowances are made for fair use of public content for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, and research. Fair use is a use permitted by copyright statute that might otherwise be infringing. Nonprofit, educational, or personal use tips the balance in favor of fair use.